0: The Old Testament reading and the Gospel reading are both about widows, uh, poor widows, who were generous. Then the word of the Lord is from First Kings 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, Behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's read Philemon again. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith, so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains formerly he was useless to you but now he's become useful both to you and to me i am sending him who is my very heart back to you would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while i'm in chains for the gospel but i didn't want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good no longer as a slave But better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the 12th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. In his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So Philemon 15. Philemon verse 15. Let's talk first about Romans 8.28, which you guys all, um, most of you are familiar with. Very famous text. We know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, them He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. So all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It's the kind of thing that is good, uh, good for us to know that everything that happens in your life is being used by God. And this, He says, everything, right? All things, everything that happens in your life is being used by God for your good. Everything is working out for good. And this is something that a lot of times we Christians say, "Okay, yeah, we believe this. All things are working out for good." It's good to define what good is, right? Uh, what does it mean that everything's working out for your good? Well, Paul explains it right in the next line. We know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, because, here's what good is, those He foreknew, in other words, those of you who have, before you were in your mother's womb, God had chosen you. He also did predestinate, it's God's eternal plan from before the creation of the world, He also did predestinate to conform you to the image of His Son. This is what, This is what good is. Everything, God is using everything in your life as a way to mold and shape you to look more like Jesus. It's quite possible that good will also include uh, hunger. It's quite possible that it will also include good food. It's quite possible that it will include going to prison. It's quite possible that it will include not going to prison. It might include wealth. It might include poverty. But one thing that we know for certain that God's will will be, for those of you who are believers, is God's will is his determination to make you look more like his son, Jesus. Alright, right, so this is good background to what Paul's doing in Philemon, because this is the theme of Philemon, verse 15, where he's uh, grappling with the badness of this situation. The situation is bad for Onesimus, right? Onesimus is a slave, we know this much, is that he's spent at least some part of his life being owned by another human being. This is not a good situation. We know that for for Philemon, this is what we talked about last week, it's also a bad situation. One, because uh, he has property. It's human property. It's property that's abandoned him. He's lost this guy that he owns. We don't know this for sure, but it looks like it's quite possible too, and we'll look at this next week, that it's, it's possible that he's also lost money or some sort of property that Onesimus has stolen from him. This is why it looks like Paul says to Philemon, If he's stolen, if you've lost anything from him, I'll pay it back to you. Uh, So Philemon is certainly unhappy. But but also underneath of this, remember what we talked about last week. Philemon is trapped in this worldview where it's okay for somebody who is of a higher socioeconomic scale to own somebody else. This is, I mean, the guy's a believer. He has a church that meets in his house, right? and yet he's still okay with owning slaves. And I don't want to preach last week's sermon to you again, but Paul Paul attacks this notion that it's okay to have slaves. And he does it without saying slavery's bad. He does it with the gospel. If we are all united together by faith in Jesus Christ, then there isn't poor or rich. There's not slave or free. There's not male or female. We've all been baptized into Jesus Christ, like he says at the end of Galatians it, 3. If the, if the gospel's going to work, then Onesimus should be able to go back to Philemon and be received, not as a slave, but much more than a slave, as a dear brother in Christ, he says. But, it's still a bad situation. And he's gonna have to deal with the bad feelings from this. It's gonna be a hard thing for Onesimus to go back to the guy who used to own him and say, now we're equals, right? It's gonna be a hard thing for Philemon to look at somebody who he used to own and say, now I accept you as my equal, as a brother in Christ. It's a bad situation. And so in verse 15, Paul's going to um, grapple with the badness of this situation. And he says this, perhaps the reason he was separated you from a little while was that you might have him back forever. Why, Philemon, do you think that this happened? Certainly Philemon has been thinking up until now, the reason why it happened is because this lousy slave thought that it was okay to run away and steal his stuff. And Paul wants him to see that there's perhaps a deeper reason behind the sinfulness and the brokenness of his relationship with Onesimus. And that is God's eternal plan to shape and mold Philemon and Onesimus to look more like Jesus. They're predestined for this. It is their future. It is what God has elected them for. Together, more like Jesus. United more like Jesus, that they can have a relationship that will begin to look not like a human relationship where power is the key to the relationship. One person has power and the other person doesn't. We talked about this. This is the the key to all of our human relationships on a human level is who's going to be in charge. Husband and wife relationship, friend and friend relationship, parent-child relationship. Paul is calling upon them to see their relationship now in terms of the gospel. It's not a question of who's in charge. There is nobody who's in charge here. Jesus Christ is in charge, and you together are brothers and sisters. If he was talking to, uh, to, to to any women in this situation, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for it's a hard thing to say to people. Look, bad situation. God has good in this. But one of it is that we don't want to hear this when we're in a bad situation, right? Just, I mean, this is just human niceness one hundred and one. Don't go to somebody who's just lost a loved one that's very close to them and say, hey, it's going to be okay. God works all things together for good. This is really calloused and sort of cold, right? Paul prefaces this with this, this great word, perhaps. It's the first word in the verse. Paul doesn't know exactly how this is going to look in terms of goodness. He doesn't know exactly how this is going to work out for the sanctification of Philemon and Onesimus. So he says, perhaps. I don't really know. But maybe, because you just don't know. You don't know. what We're going to talk about this in just a second. You can't define good. We can define it in super broad terms. God's plan is for you to look more like Jesus. But how that's actually going to work out in your life, we just don't know. And so Paul covers his bases a little bit. He hedges his bet here. Perhaps this is going to... One of the reasons why, too, is that he doesn't know how Philemon's going to react. Is Philemon going to take back this slave, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ? That's a big if. Maybe it's not going to work. One of the questions we have about Philemon is, does it work? We don't have a follow-up. We don't have like Philemon's letter back to Paul saying, okay, you convinced me I'm in. One clue we have, though, and I mentioned this earlier as well, is that Philemon is here in the New Testament. It's a personal letter written to one dude. and Just that it's in the New Testament at all is probably a good sign that Philemon went for it that Philemon believed the gospel and welcomed him If he hadn't, it's it's unlikely that he would have thrown the letter in the trash and somebody would have pulled it out and it would have ended up in the New Testament. It's a difficult thing. So this is one reason. Here's a little commercial. This is kind of an aside. Take this as preventative medicine. It's going to be extremely hard for me to say this to you when you just found out you had cancer. It's going to be extremely hard for you to say this to me when you find out that I lost a loved one close to me, it's going to be very hard for you to say, hey, it's going to be okay. God works everything for good. And so let's now, I know that some of you are struggling with stuff and we're all struggling with little things. Some of you are struggling with big things right now. But for those of you who aren't and you're pretty comfortable and you're like, okay, things are going pretty well, let's get it in your head by the power of the Holy Spirit now that God is determined to make you look like his son, Jesus Christ. And everything that happens to you, good stuff and bad stuff as well, is being used by God for this end. Believe that now before the tough times get here. Because if you don't believe it now when the tough times get here, it's going to be very easy to shake the fist at God and say, what are you doing? Are you even there? Begin trusting him even now. Allow the Holy Spirit to use his word here to create faith in your heart that that is indeed God's plan. And he's going to use bad stuff and good stuff to make you look like Jesus. This is going to involve, believing this is going to involve changes in perspective. All right, there's three ways to look at Our lives, time-wise. One is this way. Most of us can only, we we struggle to see anything except for the moment. The moment that you're in right now. This is hard to do. I, so when I was in high school, uh, in college too, you you know, you go to basketball practice, and at the end of practice, I guess this is just like, uh, a par for the course with basketball coaches. You're going to end up running wind sprints. You know, you're going to start off, And my high school coach, we would start off at one end of the court and you run and you touch the free throw line and then you run back and then you run and you touch the half court line, you run back, then run and touch the far free throw line and run back and then run and touch the end line and run back. And you're going to do that seven or eight times and the goal is, is that you're doing this at the end of practice when you're really, really tired and the goal is, is to not let those times flag, is to keep those times up. And for those of you who've done this, you know that in the moment, it's just sadistic, right? In the moment, it's just this guy yelling at you, saying, run. And all you can think about is, I just want to stop and breathe. That's all you want to do. Maybe get a drink of water, just stop and not be sucking wind. In the, in the moment, that's all you see. But there is, of course, the perspective of the whole season where you're going to need to be in shape and if you can see the broader perspective of the whole season, it's a little bit easier to understand that the coach isn't necessarily being sadistic. He's doing bad things for you so that you become an in-shape basketball player. So that in the last tournament of the season, if you've been doing this for several months and you would prefer to not run anymore, you'll have that reserve of energy. You'll have that ability to run down the court one more time. But this is hard to do. It's hard, you know, it's easy to shake your fist at the coach. You know, what are you doing this for? It's easy to hate the coach. But the coach has something bigger in mind, and that is the story of your whole life. You see this thing in this moment, but you have a whole life in front of you, and this moment is going to create good, whatever that good is. And so we should learn to see things in the perspective of our whole lives. This is why Paul says, he uses time language, right? He says, maybe you've been separated from Onesimus for a while so that you can have him back for good. And the word there in Greek is actually for forever. You can have him back for forever. St- don't, don't see your relationship with Onesimus in this little tiny window here of this slave that you own stole your stuff. And of course, that's horrible. You know, you don't want your stuff stolen. You don't want your slave to run away. See it in perspective of your life that you're going to have this guy back for forever. There's, there's, of course, We just use the word forever, right? There's even a broader perspective to your life, and that is God's story. You have your story, right? You're born, you live your life, some of you were born and raised believers, some of you came to believers, came to believe in Jesus as adults, but you have the story of your life that's kind of changing and growing, and hopefully you can see God working in your life to make you look like Jesus, but sometimes even that good is not what we would call good. Think about the lives of the martyrs, where People who believe in Jesus end up getting killed for their faith. It's quite possible that you are going to die poor, hungry, lonely, never having victory over your anxiety issues, never having relationships that are one point dear to you repaired. You could very well end up giving giving up your life for Jesus. Do, Do we want to call that good? In a certain worldly sense, it's not good to live your life and then die for the sake of your faith. There's a, there's a broader perspective behind that, too, your own life, and that is God's story, the story of the God who created the world, designed it to look like him, but fell because we humans rebelled. And then God's got this long, elaborate plan culminating in the death of his son, Jesus, whereby he's rescuing this world back to himself, and he's allowing me and you to be his agents. Underneath the blood of Jesus, inside of the body of Christ, you and I get to be his agents, To bring about this good, capital G good, where God reclaims all things for himself. And seeing your life, not, not just this moment here, the moment of your struggle, but also seeing your life as part of this bigger story is the key to understanding that God is using your life for good, to create good, to mold and shape you to be an agent by which he, through you, by the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, brings his creation back underneath of his own authority. Think about Jim Elliot. Think about other martyrs who've died. You know, Jim Elliott's standing on that beach in South America, and he's about to be killed. And does he think that that's good? Probably not. He's probably thinking, I want to live. Think about his wife when she finds out that your husband's been killed, delivering the gospel message to these people. Does she think that that's good? Probably not in the story of her life. She's probably going to say, that's the worst moment in my life, right? But as far as eternity goes... Here's a whole tribe of people who today worship Jesus. That's good. Would it have happened without the death of Jim Elliot? We we don't know for certain. Perhaps. This is why a verse like Philemon 15 is prefaced with perhaps. You don't know, but you do know that God used that death to create goodness. It's a hard thing to see. It's a hard thing to look past the moment that you're in, especially when the moment is really, really bad or really, really good. Paul is calling us to see our little wiles in terms of forever. God is using your little wiles to bring about good. There's two ways that we can react to this, of course. One way is to focus on the little while and then to begin to blame God for the little while. And this is what a lot of us do. This is, what, this is actually one of the, the main arguments against the existence of God, or against at least the existence of a good God, is how how can a good God let bad things like Jim Elliott's death or Philemon and Onesimus' fractured relationship or your bad financial problems or your bad health issues? How can a good God let things like that happen? But remember, go back to the basketball coach thing. Bad things are not being used. Having to run wind sprints is not an argument that your coach doesn't exist. It's also, like I said earlier, it's not an argument that your coach is not a good coach. It might, in fact, be an argument that your coach is a good coach, and has a good plan, and that we simply can't understand it in the moment. Learning to see our suffering in terms of discipline, not in terms of punishment, not in terms of a careless God, not in terms of a God who's vindictive, but in terms of God disciplining us for this game plan of rescuing his creation back to himself might just be the way to understand that a God who allows bad things to happen is, yes, indeed, a God who loves us and has a plan that he's working out. But the second thing is this. God's not on the sidelines blowing the whistle. God's running with us. I had a soccer coach. One year I had a soccer coach in high school who actually were in soccer. I don't know if you guys ever play soccer. It's kind of a sport everybody's required to play until they're like 12 and then you quit. But I had a coach in high school. I played soccer in high school who actually ran with us. Like he would run every long distance, every sprint. He would run with us. I respected that guy. I mean, in retrospect, I respected my basketball coaches too, who stood on the sideline and blew the whistle. But I really respected that guy because every breath of wind that I sucked, he sucked as well. Every pain in my gut, he felt as well. Every weak leg being pulled up one more time and placed in front of the other one, he was doing that as well. And that's the way to understand Jesus. Jesus knows what fractured relationships like. Jesus knows what it's like to be a slave. Jesus knows what it's like to stand on the beach with natives throwing spears at you. Jesus knows what it's like to be poor, to be abandoned. Jesus knows what it's like to die. Our God doesn't stand aloof looking at our suffering and saying, okay, just do it, and I want you to believe that I'm a good God. He becomes human so that he can suffer with us. He becomes human so that he can be broken with us. He has the ability to say all things work together for good because he's gone through it. He's lived it. He's died it. And now he's making all things, all things good through us for his own glory. Amen.